This is the Big Brand Theory Podcast by Blackwood Creative with your host, Kyle Johnson. And now, here's Kyle. Guys, today we have an amazing guest on. His name's Chris Doe. And if you're in the design or agency space or marketing space at all, and you've probably come across Chris's stuff on Instagram specifically, YouTube probably. Chris is a a teacher at heart. And that's one of the things that as we listen to this episode, I think it's so important to take in and to understand that in reality, marketing is more about giving and teaching than it is about promotion. It's such a huge thing right there that Chris talks about. Um, I want to make sure that you're diving in, grab a pad and a pencil, an iPad, your phone, whatever the heck you need to take some notes because this episode is absolutely chock full of quality, quality content. So join me as we chat with the Chris Doe. So Chris, uh, let's start with this. Um, for the you know four and a half people that have never heard of you um, that are listening to this podcast, tell us a little bit about who you are and then what you do. Sure. My name is Chris Doe. I'm the founder of a company called The Future. I describe myself as a loud introvert with a really big mission, which is to teach 1 billion people how to make a living doing what they love. In a former life, I was a graphic designer, making commercials and music videos for some of the biggest brands and bands in the world. In, in 2014, I started dipping my toes into YouTube and started creating educational content for people. And now this is what I do full time. That's awesome. So uh, let's back up to that, uh, that mission that you have. The um, 1 billion people to build. Yes. What, talk to me a little bit more about that. What does that look like? Okay. Well, I, I thought teaching a million people would be too easy, relatively speaking. <laughs> because we already have a million subscribers on our YouTube channel. And you could argue that that already counts. Sure. And so just the next number up seemed like a billion, but I'm a big believer in manifesting your goals into your existence. And it starts with starting with a big, hairy, audacious goal, something that's really far out of reach that might take you all of your life or maybe multiple lifetimes to achieve. And it, it, it doesn't, uh, uh, I, it doesn't go unrecognized to me that that might not be possible, but it's uh, it's goal worth trying to work towards. And it's driven by my purpose, which is to disrupt education. I think the education system has gone largely unchanged for a couple hundred years now, and it's really designed to build human computers and, and to re- replace people in factories and mines and things like that. And so it's a system that teaches to the norm, which is the average. So the outliers, the really super smart people and the people who learn a little differently are usually left behind. It's a system built by where people who have means and resources have a competitive advantage over those that don't. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to I tackle that and, and perhaps topple it if possible. And I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. So there's... Um, Khaleesi uh, Daenerys Targaryen, who says we must break the wheel because the wheel keeps going round and round and round. Yeah. So I want to break the wheel. Break the wheel. That's a huge goal, dude. That is, is. um, and, and is it a billion people teaching them? Is this strictly around design and business or is it broader than that? 
it's going to have to be broader than that for it to work because I don't think, okay, so there are like uh, seven point some billion people on planet Earth. Maybe, maybe we'll hit 8 billion by the time we're done here, right? So we're talking about one in eight people on planet Earth being touched by directly what we do or indirectly by the people who we teach who then go on to teach other people. So then you can see part of my strategy here is to create teachers, to empower them, to enable them to be more effective at reaching others. And so we can do that by using open platforms that are accessible, that are affordable, that we, we might have a shot at doing this. And it's going to have to expand way beyond creativity because there may not be one in eight creative people on, on the planet. Yeah. And so we center our content around things that are close to us, design, entrepreneurship, creative entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, marketing, that kind of stuff. And so once we get that model established and have market validation that this is a legitimate business that can grow and scale, then we expand beyond the creative fields. And that is the future, right? That's, that's the business, but it's also the actual future of what we're, yes. what you're hoping to see. That is right. That's awesome. Cool. So, um, as we talked about a little bit right at the beginning of this, like we're, we're talking to and hopefully listen, people that are listening are in the marketing space specifically, maybe maybe some outliners in the design space um, or, or just anything connected like that. But um, so I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit around um, maybe some of this is around personal your personal brand. Maybe it's around the future um, or even like past experience or whatever, but um you've clearly built up, uh, you've become an authority in this space, right? And so I guess that's part of um, the, that's on done on purpose. Um, but how, like, let's talk a little bit about how you've kind of gotten there. You talked about you had a million subscribers on YouTube. Um, we don't need to get into like real deep tactics or anything necessarily of like uh, what you did specifically. Um, I think part of that is just the incredible value that you're offering by itself. But um, you're, you're working through and you've, and you're helping others with, uh, like we talked about, like right now, marketing, positioning, pricing. One of the things that we really love personally, I love as a business owner, is you talking to people about how to do pricing, uh, in the freelancing or in the, in the marketing world. Like, um, how do you, how did you get to this place, um, where you feel like you've, you've become an authority in that from whether it's back from whatever got out of high school and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But um, like, what got you from there to like here, where were your steps? Was some of it intentional? Was it just kind of happenstance? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. I, I'd like to tell you a story that it was all designed and intentional. It's not, it's furthest from the truth. And there are overlapping concepts that I think uh, point in a direction and then it seems like when that door is open, it's up to you as an individual to walk through it or to close the door. And so for me, at this point in my life and career in 2014, I'm already decades into my my creative studio and uh, service business blind, making commercials and music videos. I'm also probably already now at this point, 10 years into teaching at a private art school. But these two worlds felt very far apart to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world of commerce and client and service work where you're getting paid top dollar to to think and work at the highest level. And then there's this other world where it, it was like really good food for my soul. It was very nourishing to be able to sit with a small group of young creatives who want to learn from 
diverse backgrounds to teach them what it is that I knew about telling stories in a visual format. And it was, it was good for, for my, my being and my purpose, but it was terrible for the pocketbook. I got paid less as a teacher than what I paid freelancers to work for me. So I was working at a net loss. But, and you say, well, teaching is not about money. And, and that's one of those things that people think that it's, it must be true because everybody says it. Seems like everybody believes it. But that's where I go back and think, who says it's true? Why, why can't you make money teaching? And if, if making money is one metric, uh, like a scorecard of impact in the world, then, then why is it that we reward people who, who work in stock exchanges who don't create any real value in the world, just moving units around from one, one account to another? They seem to be paid the most, yet teachers, doctors, whatever, we're, are not doctors, but teachers especially, mm-hmm. are at the bottom of that pay scale. So we have to invent and create a new system where teachers can be rewarded for the things that they do, the contributions that they have for society. And not all teachers are created equal. And so in 2000, late 2013, I run into an old um, art center classmate of mine. I asked him for help in learning how to design websites. And one thing leads to another. He's like, let's go on to YouTube. Let's make videos. Now, this is part of his business model, something he, he's comfortable doing. He's uh, a loud extrovert and he's trying to pull a quiet introvert into his world. And I was very reluctant. I, it was like um, in Joseph Campbell's The Hero with the, the Thousand Faces, The Hero's Journey. In, in the story, the hero is always reluctant to, to uh, respond to the call to adventure. And this is classic story structure. Jose is his name. And he says, Chris, let's make videos on YouTube. And I'm like, no, why would I do that? I, I don't want to speak on camera. I, I'm the guy who, who shoots things. I'm on the other side of the camera. I'll help you produce it. He's like, no, you need to be on camera with me. I have too much to risk. It seems like YouTube is full of like um, uh, posers and wannabes and people who haven't done anything with their lives and just want to try to be super charismatic and build a business around being an influencer and a content creator, right? I don't want to be associated with that kind of brand. That's just not for me. And that's the refusal of the call. But Jose in this story is my mentor. And he says, you know what? I get it. I totally understand. Why don't we just do this? Let's just roll the camera and we'll decide later if we want to release it. And all you have to do is sit there. And when you feel comfortable, then you say something. But if you don't want to say anything, don't say anything at all. And I'll run the show. I'm like, okay, that's an offer you can't refuse. And so I go into it and then we make a few videos. They're okay. And it wasn't until we had our first hit video, which was just really me teaching and not trying to sell anybody anything, that it started to break through. Mm -hmm. And that's when the moment changes. So there wasn't this great intention of like, I want to be a teacher and YouTube is the answer. I wanted to be a teacher. I just didn't know the model. When those two worlds kind of coalesce, then the answer becomes apparent. Wow. So then how do you how do you go from that to running an agency to building an online brand? I mean, you've I've you know, you've been earlier this week watched one of your videos around growing Instagram, stuff like that. Like how does where's that next step come from? Yeah, just like um uh, Frodo and, and, uh, going to like take the ring. Is it Frodo? I think it's Frodo, right? Um, 
or is it Bilbo Baggins? No, it's Frodo. Frodo goes, takes the ring, uh, and he has to go and throw it in, into the pit of lava, right? He's got to destroy it. And he thinks, yep, I'll have a sandwich. And we'll just march right in there. Uh, my, my friends, the, the fellowship will take care of every obstacle and we'll just throw it in the pit and we'll be gone. And life doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So there's that conflict or tension that exists between subjective expectation and objective reality. And that's where, where stories are made. So you go make a video and you think, okay, I'll make a video. I'm done. Okay. Big deal. What's the deal? Well, then you realize that nobody, nobody shows up to watch your video. So now you got to get people to watch your video. So what do you have to do? Well, uh, there's this thing called Twitter, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And we have to learn how to use those platforms to drive traffic to, to YouTube so that they can watch the videos. And so I literally uh, remember just like asking my friend Jose, like, yeah, I have a Twitter account, but what do I do with that? You know, I don't, I don't know what to say, how to use this Instagram. What do you do there? And it, it took a lot of trial and error. And so the adventure starts to get more complicated because now you're learning about how to make videos that people watch on YouTube, but you're also learning how the algorithm works, how people show up on these different platforms and how to speak about the things you care about in a way that is congruent with the audience that shows up there. And it was a lot of learning, a lot of trials and, and, and mistakes, trial and error. And eventually you get to something like, oh, I think I figured it out. And when you figure it out, it's really fun, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, so since you've figured it out, right, yes. let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Cause that's just something that, I mean, we see as an agency and just across the board, it's, it's how, how do I go? How do I grow this thing? Right. How do I expand my reach? And as we see mainly the big players, Facebook and Instagram starting to throttle down on your organic reach and all that type of stuff. Like, what are you, what are you doing to push past that to, to reach people without just dropping tens of thousands of dollars into advertising and so forth? Yeah. Great question, Kyle. I I think, most of the traffic that we get, most of the follows and subscribers that we get are done organically. I would say like less than five or 3% of it is paid. And so how, how do you solve that problem? Uh, yeah. Facebook is the exception to this because I'm, I'm, I'm writing Facebook off at this point huh. because it's a model really built on advertising and trying to yeah. make as much money as possible. I think last year they did like $98 billion in revenue off the things that you post and share. And there was a time when you could go viral when your content can be organic and then it would catch an audience and, and, and you would be delighted. But since they need to make money, since they want to make money, they've, they've really changed things. So I'm not investing a lot of time there. But the algorithm on most platforms are designed to connect people to the content they want to see. And so when people talk about like hacking the algorithm, they're, they're talking about some weird cheat or trick or technique and those things can work, but they usually get resolved really fast because you're talking about some of the smartest engineers and developers on the planet writing the software. So when they see someone exploiting the algorithm, and then they're going to change it. Mm-hmm. And the best hack that I can share with your audience in terms of hacking the algorithm is to create content that people genuinely want to see, they're moved by, and they feel like if they don't share it with their friends, they're doing a disservice. Like when you watch a funny video, when you watch a video that brings you to tears because there's an act of kindness that is unexpected. Uh, the other day I was watching uh, 
like an amputee give his crutches to a homeless person who also only had like one functional leg. Right. So it's like, Mm -hmm. this was incredible. And the thing that really brought my emotions out was after he helps his homeless, I think it's a homeless woman with her crutches. uh, She, they, they embrace. And it's not just like a, a, like a distant embrace. Like when you see a homeless person, it's not a pat pat and you're on your way. They embraced for what felt like 30 seconds to a minute long and it was deep and it was meaningful. And it, it was just a, a very profound thing, especially because we've been isolated for over a year to see that it's just, and, and this is a recent video because people were wearing masks and it was just like, this is incredible. And so if you create something like that, that touches someone, they'll remember it and they'll tell that story again on a podcast or they'll, they'll tell their mom, their sister, or their husband, whoever, their brother, and, and that's really what you're trying to do. So this expression that I like to use is if you want to reach more people, teach more people. Okay. And you see a lot of people on social media, a copying formats, frameworks, and literally language and the visuals too. It's like, what are you trying to do? What you're trying to do is you just want to get a result without putting in the work. And it's like trying to say, like, I want to have an amazing buff body. I want to be yoked, but I don't want to eat right. And I don't want to exercise. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to inject synthol into my muscles. It's just make them big. And we know that that's not a good thing. Uh, um, In that same vein, like how, like as, as people are looking at, Hey, this seems to be working. Right. And I think that's why you get a lot of copycats of like, Hey, this, this person's getting a lot of followers they're doing these carousels. There's here's the right. style, whatever it seems to be working. So let's copy that and see if it works for us. Right. Um, how do they not do that? How do they, how do they find their original version of what that is? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I, I, I want to be clear and to be on the record, like, uh, cause some people would attribute me as the person who's like the guy who's like crushing on with carousels in the first two. I was not the first two. I was interviewing a friend of mine, Michael Janda and in researching in preparation for the, for the live stream together, I look at his Instagram account and I, I'm connected with him and I see like how he's like hovering at relative anonymity. And then he has this spike in growth. Like he was at a couple thousand followers and then he was at 34,000. And I was looking at him like, what the heck is going on? So I'm interviewing him and talking to him and I'm looking at his content and my mind explodes because it was the first time that I actually saw someone trying to use these 10 slide things later to be known as carousels as a format for teaching. And I thought it was brilliant because he was out there promoting his book and I already read his book. So I can see that he was pulling content from the book. And this is truly what they are referring to. I think in the intention of saying micro content, mm-hmm. you take something big, something you've thought out and you have a point of view on that's researched and, well-written, and then you translate that into little bite-sized pieces. So you're taking a 12-course meal and you're just chopping them to ever so slightly bites, and it works. And I see that, and, and I have an epiphany. And I said, if Instagram is a platform for teaching, not flexing, then I have literally now thousands of slides because I've probably have like 100 keynote presentations and each one has anywhere between 50 to 300 slides each. And I'm like, oh my God, I have content for, for days. 
right? So I dive into my keynote decks. I'm like, shoot, let me pull out the 10 slides. So here's the key difference though. My, my keynote slides are not meant to be read. They're just a visual aid. So now I gotta go back and I gotta start writing the things that I normally would be saying. And so you start to learn over time and many iterations later that if you try to cram too much information into an Instagram carousel, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. People are not there to try to read a novel. They're there for light but satisfying content. So somebody hearing this could copy the format. They could copy the typefaces, which they do. They can use the same color palettes, which they do. Same image treatment, the same illustrators that I use. But what they're missing is, what is it that you want to say? What are you trying to teach? And if, if you boil it down to why carousels work, it comes down to one thing that's surprising. It's the writing. Hmm. So if you're not writing, if you're not saying things in your own voice, sharing stories that other people haven't seen, then you're really just copy paste. And yes, you will get some follows and it will feel pretty good. But then now you're just a poor copy of another person's copy of another person's copy. And is that really what you want to be known for? I don't think so. That's powerful. And that kind of leads me to my, to another question I had, cause I feel like, uh, and maybe you're running into this as well, but um, there's, there's a lot of people who are getting a little bit, I guess it's the right word for it, tired in of the noise uh, feeling like social media is getting a little stale. And maybe that's exaggerated because we've been locked down for a year and we've been digital on everything for a year, but how does, how does a brand, how does it, whether it's personal or as a company, like freshen things up? How do they, how do they break through that noise to, to generate attention, I guess? Okay. Um, I think there is a lot of noise out there because there are a lot of uninspired, un unoriginal, just poorly thought out content. And when we get bombarded with that stuff, it just feels like we're, we're, we're becoming numb to it all. And there are ways out of this. Okay. So if a company has good intentions is trying to create content that's going to be valuable for their audience, the best thing they can do after having drained all of their creative energy is they have to refill it. That's, that's what you need to do. And if you continue to, to tap into a source, eventually that source is going to run dry if you don't replenish it. And so for me, that's about being curious and perhaps reading a couple of books, watching a few, few movies or documentaries and just not thinking about making content for a little while. And that's how you fill the, the well back up. And that's what I do. So I'm sharing with you what, what's worked for me. And, and maybe there's a different way for you. I also find that sometimes my, my best ideas are preceded by extended periods of boredom. Because we're our, our little hamster wheel mouse who's running all the time. And it's tired. And it's not going to come up with something good for you. And so you need to kind of just unplug, walk away, take an extended break from things and just be willing to be bored out of your mind. And what I do is I, I typically bring a notebook with me and a pen and nothing else. I'm not in the consumption mode anymore. I'm in the processing mode. And I don't know if you um, know about these, these different ideas, but there's like, uh, like slow thinking and fast thinking, you know, and the different parts of our brain. 
there's the part that is the the what what I think scientists call the active learning brain. And that's what you use right now. You're listening, you're paying attention, you're making sure the audio meter is working. Everything's just fine. And and that's what happens when you're awake and you're alert. But there's a more powerful brain, the brain that uh, it never forgets anything that's ever happened to you, your archival brain, where everything you've learned from the moment you've or become aware, it's been recorded there. And what happens is the active brain, brain passes in this information into your archival brain. And, and during periods of rest, during sleep, a nap, or like really deep REM, REM sleep, your mind starts to try to make sense of it all. And that's why like you have these crazy dreams where things don't make sense because it's grabbing parts of everything that's ever happened to you and it's creating a story for you to experience. So people who don't sleep enough, who don't get deep, meaningful rest, aren't able to make sense of what they've recorded. And I think if you just are in a, in a conscious state and you turn off the active learning brain, where like you're sitting in the desert, let's just say you're sitting in the desert under a tree and, and all you got is the sound of the wind, the, the feel of the sun on your skin and the dryness of the air and you're sitting there. So the input part, your, archi- your active brain isn't really doing much. So now your archival brain, while still awake, is working really hard for you now. And that's why many people experience this phenomenon when they're driving, when they're taking a shower, vacuuming, cleaning, doing something that doesn't require a lot of high-level brain activity. And that's when you have your eureka moment. So if you want to have fresh ideas, it sounds counterintuitive, stop inputting at some point or change the kind of input that you have. Those two things have have been very uh, reliably productive for me. Being bored. Um, But Chris, that is really, really hard for me. You know, that's hard for a lot of us that are out here trying to be productive and constantly moving and stuff. So um, that's a tough challenge, but honestly, like a good one. I really think there's, and I've been focused lately on like, how do I make sure I hit that maximum amount of sleep, you know, and still be, still be productive. There's a lot to do, but still be saying, Hey, okay, I need all my sleep. I got to get that rest. I got to allow time for me to get back up because I can't keep pouring if I'm just, just completely empty. Yeah. There's nothing to pour out. So. Would you know this about yourself? For example, if you've had a couple of really late nights and early mornings, eventually your brain function is starting to fall apart. It deteriorates. It takes you longer to make basic decisions Mm. and creative thinking, thinking outside the box, seeing things that no one can see, connecting disparate ideas requires you at your smartest. And I've learned this over the years that when I was younger, I used to push past my physical breaking point. And I would just like, okay, we're staying up all night tonight. It's like six in the morning. I see the sunrise. I'm like, oh my God, I've been working long. And Today, I work a lot smarter. I try to work hard, but smart, smarter than harder, which is if I feel tired, I'm just eh, I'm just going to walk away from the computer. I don't care if it's 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. Whenever it is, I'm tired. I just listen to my body. I just stop. I go and rest. And then when I return, I the ideas flow and I'm actually more productive. Like I said, it sounds counterintuitive. In order for you to be more productive, you need to produce less. It's weird slow down to go faster, right? Yeah, that's right. Well said. 
Um, I want to shift a little bit because there's something new out there that a ton of people are interested in. A lot of people have no idea what it is. Um, and it seems like you've kind of gone all in on it and that's clubhouse. So, um, I like it. My team loves it. Tell us why it's something that feels like you've gone all in on, um, and what kind of value you're seeing out of it. And maybe what do you, what do you see out of it coming down the line, I guess? Yeah. So, so clubhouse is the brand of an experience. And I'll, I'll talk about the experience outside of the brand because there's some skepticism as to whether or not that brand will be here in the long run. Sure. But the concepts of this experience are valid and I think will be here moving forward, which is an ability for people to connect in an organic way around voice. So think about it as a fireside chat or a meetup with a lot of people, some, some you know, some you do not know. And that the only thing that you have to communicate who you are and what you're about is through the power of your voice. And that's it. So it's a drop-in audio-only app. And at first I was like, do we need another thing like this? Like, like yeah. I have free time to do this? No, I do not. And then you listen to some some rooms and it's it's like a really poorly run podcast. Not structured, no research, people talking over each other. What what is this nonsense? And after you get beyond that, then you unlock the true power of an audio-only app like Clubhouse. And here's the power. So one, it's with real people because the way you get into the app is through an invite. I know there are some bots in these rooms, but for the most part, when you're speaking, you have to be a real person and it's happening in real time. And it's synchronous, meaning like if you're not there, you can't participate. Mm-hmm. And so there's something interesting about this. And I think what happens is when you're asked questions and you're put in uncomfortable, unpredictable situations, your true character will reveal itself. There is no teleprompter. There is no script when you're interacting with a human being. So when someone asks you a question and you respond in a defensive, negative, uh, using a scarcity mindset, well, that's, that's who you are. And so it's extremely powerful in, it, in that it reveals the good from the bad. And if you're not ready to do that, I caution you not to jump on Clubhouse and start to reveal yourself uh, because you can create some damage for your personal brand. What I would suggest people do is to listen to a few rooms, to practice in some private rooms so that they come, become comfortable speaking their mind in real time. Because if, you're, if you don't choose your words carefully in your daily life, in that room, you're going to damage your professional and personal reputation. But I love it for that because the scammers, the charlatans, uh, the ones who steal the light instead of sharing the light, they get revealed. And it's done in a very public forum. And there are rooms that are explosive with people talking about how that other person screwed them over on something. Your reputation will not be able to, uh, you will not be able to escape your own reputation. And so I love it for that. But just the ability to connect with people again in 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 like these rooms, I think it's an awesome thing. So it's like a party chat line on, on steroids, if you will. <laughs> Do you feel like, and you mentioned there's skepticism about the future of the brand clubhouse. Where do you sit with that? Um, does it matter to you? Or are you just still focused on 
just the idea of it. Where do you sit with Clubhouse in general? Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic, although the numbers do not bode well for them as an app. From what I understand, it's founded by two relatively young guys using mostly off-the-shelf software, and they had an unexpected amount of interest in it in terms of money and active users, and it created all kinds of stress on their system. Uh, Servers were crashing. It was just total chaos, free-for-all. And they, they, their number of downloads per month have fallen off the cliff. Mm. And so, I, and this is not a good piece of information for a tech company. And so the real challenge for them is, can they be ahead of all their problems? Can they build in the necessary features that people absolutely are craving before much larger, better established, better funded companies take over to space? And there's a lot of heat in the space. I understand that Spotify purchased one of their competitors, so they're integrating that. Discord is already doing voice chat, things like that. Facebook is beta testing their version of this. Twitter is already up now with Twitter Spaces. Mark Cuban has launched his platform. You can see there's a lot of interest in this. And I think what happened is when you come up with an innovative idea, you have to be successful enough that you can escape the competition that is about to come. Like you want to like be successful in the dark if you can for as long as possible and work out the kinks. And I think this might be a case of too much, too fast, too soon. And I'm sure they're stressed out of their minds, but there's hope here. But we, we saw numbers drop precipitously in terms of like the rooms and the people you can attract. So given that then, uh, and maybe as a brand, right. Should we, should we be moving towards that? Should we be moving? Should, should we be sticking with something that's more tried and true, like the Instagram and, um, and so forth? Uh, how do, how do we as a brand navigate the emerging social media of clubhouse and TikTok and so forth versus the stuff that's here and established and has huge audiences? Yeah. Um, there's this idea that we all have to get our head wrapped around, which is most companies, say things like we're forward thinking, we we push the envelope, we're innovative. And that's just talk most of the time because mm-hmm. it makes them feel better about themselves. Innovation is inherently wasteful and messy. Okay, so if you're asking this question, should we do this, should we not do it? You take a long look in the mirror and say, are we an innovative company or are we not? Mm-hmm. So you have to take risk. You have to be willing to waste resources and make mistakes. And so if you wait around for platforms to be mature, I believe you're a late adopter or a laggard. You know, like when you're, when your parents are already using it, you know, the curve is over. You yeah. know this. Okay. When my mom's like, Hey, yeah, I, I messaged you on Facebook. I'm like, okay, Facebook is done. Yeah. Right. Cause now everybody, including your mom and your grandma are on it. So it's like, it's, it's kind of over. So I think what we have to do is we have to make calculated bets where we try things because we want to be early adopters and learn the platforms before it's flooded with a, you know, a too many people and too much noise. And so we see that in almost every platform, every social platform from Twitter, TikTok to YouTube, the early adopters, the OGs, they have huge followings because you know what happens is the creators of these platforms say, oh, you're pretty consistent. We'll just send all the traffic to you. And I, I, I think somebody told me this before, the reason why Gary Vaynerchuk has millions of followers on Twitter is not only was he an investor, but he was early in. Mm-hmm. 
And it's like, it's not that his tweets are so profound, deserving of millions of followers. It's just, he was early. So I, I think you got to go and get some of that land because it's a land grab out there. Mm-hmm. Right. And it may not work. It, it may tank. And, but then you'll say, okay, well, we wasted some time, but we figured out how to do an audio only experience that's congruent with our brand, our ethos, our values, and how we deliver value to customers. So when we want to move into the next audio only platform, we're ready. Mm-hmm. And we learn so much in the process. And so I think sitting around waiting for the conditions to be perfect and right, you'll, you have missed every boat. Don't, I, I would not do that. That's why for the first time, I'm relatively early and I wish I was there like last year, not this year, because those people have huge followings and they didn't even have to work that hard for it. I'll work hard for it, but I also like the results as well. So that's, that's what I would say. And I'm on the platform because there's something that people don't realize. The velocity of the relationships in which you can build on Clubhouse is faster with more professional people than I've seen on any other platform. I'll give you some concrete examples. A friend of mine, I'm like, get on Clubhouse. He's like, okay. So we host a few rooms together. Within the first week of us hosting rooms together with a relatively small audience, both him and I, he got a qualified lead who reached out to him. Hmm. And here's what I think. On Instagram, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and every other social platforms, it's mostly edited, curated, processed, photoshopped images. Yeah. So we have a healthy dose of skepticism when we're like, are you really that person? You know, mm-hmm. like when you stand in front of that car, it's like, it's a rental. It's not even your car. But on Clubhouse, you have none of that where you can't, you can't talk about like, yeah, I'm standing here in front of my Lamborghini. I'm like, who does that? Mm-hmm. So the only way you prove your worth is through your voice. Your voice becomes your brand. And so when we hear somebody that we like, that resonates with us, that sounds credible, that sounds smart, that's generous with their time and knowledge, then we reach out to them and they reach out to us and they connect. I've connected with people. I thought, like, when, when, when does this happen? Like doctors, people who, who are highly educated, uh, successful entrepreneurs, I connect with them. And it's, it's really interesting because now they know you're a real person. Yeah, we have a, um, I have a friend who did the same thing. He came over the other day and he said, hey, uh, you would not believe that I was in a clubhouse room and some, somebody reached out to me from across the country and placed a $30,000 order for his yep. products. And yep. <laughs> I'm well spent, I guess. So how do, um, I think, I love that idea of, of people are looking for the authenticity that comes with just, here's my voice. Here's who I am genuinely here. I can't show you a fake anything. I can maybe fake it in what I'm saying, but that's pretty much found out pretty quickly. But how can we translate that maybe into other platforms or can we? It's hard unless it's live. And that's why we go to live events. Like arguably, when you listen to a mastered recording of a band that you love, it's perfect. They can play that note a thousand times until they get it right. And then they can use some post 
uh, engineering to like make it even better. But when you go see them live and you see that I, I saw a band and they're like, they're two drummers. I'm like, how do they even coordinate? This is ridiculous. And then there's that performance aspect and it's not as good in terms of like the pure sonic quality, but there's this idea that's in us. And maybe it's just the story we tell ourselves it's live, it's real, and you never know what's going to happen. And then we have that collective experience. Like we look around in the concert, we're like, you were there, I was there and we feel and feed off each other's energies. And so unless it's live, I, I think there's always going to be that skepticism like, okay, so how much of this was crafted, right? Anytime you see an edit, you're like, wait a minute, something happened there. Yeah. Right. And that's why I think when you watch a movie that is one take, you're just blown away by it. Mm-hmm. Just because like, how did they do that? Now there's a lot of post-production that happens in there, but you know, it's always impressive to see. So when you have a long single take, it's ridiculous because there can be no room for mistakes. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the authenticity that people are missing and craving. And that's why they're so hungry for it on these social platforms. Well, Chris, as we, I want to wrap this up. Um, what would you say as you're, as you're thinking about people who are, their job is marketing their entire 40 to 60 hours a week they spend trying to promote something, trying to get something out there. What's, what's a piece of advice that you can give to somebody um, in that, in that area? Okay. Um, I think that when we speak about marketing, a lot of people draw from the long history of advertising and say, well, marketing is advertising. I think promotion is a very selfish act, whereas marketing is the generous act of helping other people achieve their goals. That's from Seth Godin. This is marketing. And so I think we have to get away from this idea that we need to interrupt people in their lives and try to jam some message down their throat because I don't think that's where the magic is happening. Um, Marty Neumeyer writes about it in his book and he talks about like how people hate to be sold, but they love to buy. And that we, we no longer buy things uh, just to fulfill a function, but we buy things to find our identity. And so we have to learn how to understand people, what motivates them and to help solve their problems And when we do that, they happily buy all the time. And this is the difference between Dell computers and Apple computers. Like I've purchased and continue to buy Dell products. I have zero emotional connection to them. I buy their products because they perform well and they're cheap, relatively speaking. Okay. And then when I say like, and when Apple makes an announcement or there's a rumor of a product, like we're all like foaming at the mouth, like what is going to happen? I've never attended a single keynote where Michael Dell was talking about the next Inspirion laptop. It's just, it doesn't happen because we just don't care. Mm -hmm. And so we, we like Apple was able to provoke or engender this experience in people because we feel connected. So when we buy an Apple product, it says something about who we are our values, and that maybe we see ourselves, even if we might not be, as one of these rebels, these 
these crazy ones, the misfits, the troublemakers, the artists who are going to change the world. Like, even if we're not that, we aspire to be like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's, that's their brand and that's how they, they market. Right? They don't even need to really make ads because the tribe is so strong. And when, when somebody says something offensive about a Dell computer, not a lot of people come stand up and like try to defend it. But when you get into the Apple PC debate, there are a lot mm-hmm. of Apple fanboys, and I consider myself one, who will go to war. Not literally, but figuratively, will say, yeah. yo, 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 back off. Stop talking <laughs> about my Apple. It's not even my Apple. They don't even know I exist. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's what I'm talking about. So we, we have to change our relationship and understanding with marketing and not think of it as promotion. If we educate people, if we entertain people, if we tell people who we are, what we stand for, then they're going to derive their meaning from being a part of our tribe. And I think that's where the magic is. Hmm. Man, that's good. We're redefining marketing right there for most people, I think. So, well, Chris, maybe for I, some. Yeah. Maybe for some. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If somebody wants to, follow along with what you're doing um, and learn from you. What's the, what's the bet? Where should they go? There's two places I can point to. First is our website. It's the future.com and the future spelt without an E it's F U T U R. Or if you want to say it with like a fancy accent, Futur, um, but it's the future and you can follow me everywhere on social media. I'm at the Chris Doe and Doe is spelled D is in David. O is in Oscar, the Chris Doe. And I'm on it everywhere. Like if you want to have a conversation with me, shoot me a DM or better yet, join me on Clubhouse. There you go. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for hopping on. Uh, you dropped a ton of value today and uh, I know I'm inspired and I know others are as well. So thanks for your time. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Kyle. Thanks so much for listening to the Big Brand Theory podcast. Make sure to like and follow us on social media and subscribe to the podcast today.